Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. This week's passage is from Matthew 6, 5-15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray at the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Good morning. Everyone don't get too excited. Buddy. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Okay, that works. My name's my name's Jeremy. I am one of the elders here, and uh, happy that you're all here this morning. Excited, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed bunch. A lot of you, really, really excited. You guys, yeah, you're looking great. You guys are doing good. So uh, we are working through the spiritual disciplines. This is the rhythm that our uh, that our church does uh, every year. We focus on uh, personal disciplines early in the year, and then we take time and focus on uh, communal disciplines, all of the one anothering one another's and at one another's houses and at one another and here and one another. Um, there's a lot of one anothering, and then uh, we focus on missional disciplines as well. And so uh, we've looked at so far. We've looked at um, the discipline of study, which Uh, Oh, I'm sorry, the kids. Thank you. Does it feel good to make somebody else aware that the children need to be dismissed? That's, yeah. Children, sorry. Yeah, you guys are dismissed. So, uh, kids, what do we got? We got care today. We've got elevate. Do we have elevate today? Somebody, yes? Do we have EGC? I think EGC was last week, so I think you guys are stuck in here. So, okay. All right. There you go. So, uh, I'm not normally the person that does this. Um... Uh, Trey is normally the person that does this, and yet he's here and he's doing nothing. So I don't know how everybody feels about that. It's not nothing. We're glad that you're here. But Trey started us off with uh, the discipline of study, and then Joel last week uh, walked us through the discipline of meditation, which was fantastic. And so this week is uh, the the discipline of prayer, the personal discipline of prayer. Uh, And we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer today. Spoiler alert. Thank you, Anne, for reading the scripture. Um, so we're going we're gonna to look at Matthew 6, 5 through 15 today, and spoiler alert, my hope is to, to get you to rediscover and fall in love with the Lord's Prayer, or if you haven't been exposed to the Lord's Prayer, if you're new or a guest with us, that you learn to love it, that's, that you see the, the goodness of it. So um, 
personal experience with prayer. I don't, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what your personal experience with prayer is. Mine, I've got a long, sorted past with prayer, complicated history with prayer. Um, childhood prayers. Did you guys have childhood prayers? I had, we had the dinner prayer, the food prayer, which was God is great, God is good. If you know it, finish it. Let us thank him for this food. Good, okay, all right. Um, but if that uncle was there and your brother had already started to pile food into his face, sometimes it was just abbreviated to God's neat, let's eat. Uh, I don't know if you guys did that one, but we did that one. Um, and then there was the, <laughs> the classic bedtime prayer. Uh, now I lay me down to sleep. You guys, there are different versions of this prayer. Did you know there are different versions of this prayer? Did you guys, who, who, who was familiar with the prayer that I just said? It started, right? Now I lay me down to sleep. What's the nice version? Pray the Lord my soul to keep. What's, what comes after in the nice version? There's like 20 versions, apparently. Now, there's a nice version that says something like, may angels watch me through the night until I wake by morning light or something like that. My version was not so user-friendly. My version went something like, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I could have not thought about death all day long. And at bedtime, just before we click the lights off and say goodnight, sweetheart, here I am at seven, eight years old contemplating spontaneous nocturnal death. Who, now, in all fairness, that prayer was written in the late 18, early 1900s. It's fuzzy, but it was written in a time where that was a real and likely possibility for some people. There was, food, there was famine, and there was disease, and there was pestilence, and there were wars, and it was altogether possible that you might not make it through the night. But in our world, in our context, the chances of me not making it through the night were relatively slim. Wait. Yeah, I said that right, I think. Uh, and I went to sleep terrified some nights, just thinking about, and so now as an adult today, every day I think about death. It's just all day long, I think about death. Is that a heart attack or is it stress? I don't know. They're, they're the same. You're laughing because you know what I'm talking about. It's like, oh, it might, be, it might be anxiety, it might be stress, or it could be a heart attack. I'm, you know, just sit down and rest, but you might die. So also, just watch out. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's way, way off track, really sorry. So, uh, yeah, prayer was, prayer was an uh, interesting experience as a child. And so, uh, and, and then you get older, and for those who were raised in church, there's an experience that I came to affectionately call prayer pressure. This was the pants-soiling experience of having a leader in the church call on you as a young person to actually offer prayer on behalf of a group of people publicly in front of everybody. And it was just like, you might as well just shoot me. Like, why don't you, you could, you could publicly berate me in front of all my friends and then literally throw me out by the collar and I would feel less anxious than you just made me feel by saying, Jeremy, would you lead us in prayer? Um, so that, that was challenging. Um, so, and the faith tradition that, that I was brought up in, spent a lot of my young life in up until late teenage years was Pentecostalism. Does anybody, any, any former Pentecostals here? Seriously? All right. I'm, the people that I know were, aren't raising their hands for shame, but that's, no, it's fine. It's not, it's not a shameful thing. Um, but seriously, nobody else, not even, no, it's okay. It's not that weird. 
But the, so Pentecostalism has, do, do you, how about, raise your hands, do you know what Pentecostalism is? Have you ever seen or come in contact with Pentecostals or a Pentecostal church, apostolic Pentecostal? Charismatics were essentially Pentecostals with lipstick and they could wear pants um, and they could cut their hair. So, no? Anybody? Okay. All right, some people. So, uh, Pentecostalism, uh, it is a branch of the church that emphasized in certain divisions of uh, certain sects of Pentecostalism, sometimes put an unhealthy emphasis uh, to an extreme degree on um, the the hyper-spiritual supernatural gifts, uh, specifically around the function, purpose, and methods of prayer. Um, and then the, those, the experiences that went along with those practices. And uh, sometimes things would, would strike a, an unhealthy balance, and sometimes there were plenty of congregations that seemed to sort of rein things in, but these are the congregations that get caricatured in movies and TV shows where they fall out and they're shouting and screaming and running the aisles and um, all kinds of interesting things. Anybody, are you guys, have I creeped everybody out thoroughly right now? Yep. Yeah, okay, great. So anyway, um, that formed a lot of my, uh, there, there, was, there was our home prayer life where we said the prayers, and there was the uh, many, many experiences of walking in uh, on my mother, uh, fully engrossed in her prayers, and, um, and I knew the significance and the power of that, even as a young child, but, but from a a congregational from a corporate communal standpoint my understanding of, of prayer was formed in a very different context than what you you have right now here at refuge um, or maybe even experienced uh, growing up so uh, all that's to say even at 40 something odd years old for early 40s uh, I am I am still as I'm sure many of us are reckoning and re-reckoning and rediscovering and uh, turning corners in my relationship with prayer and going back to the drawing board in some cases to attempt to understand what is the meaning and the purpose of prayer, what is the significance of prayer in my life and making sure that uh, I maintain a healthy, balanced understanding of what prayer is. And so uh, for our focus today, I really want to take a look at the Lord's Prayer, and I want to use that as, um, I, want, I want to make sure that we see it for what it is. And it, this passage is fantastic because, and we can go ahead and throw it up on the screen if you would, if that would be, thank you. Um, let's jump back to uh, verse 5 in chapter 6. Let's start off, start at the very beginning. It's a, it's a very good place to start. Um, sorry, so yeah, jump back to 5 be the, uh, is that his, what's that? That's as soon as we've got, so, sorry, it, this will be the Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. This is the Matthew chapter 6 scripture reading. So, you can turn to it in your Bibles. It's Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And so we're just going to kind of work through it a little bit um, because Jesus is extremely helpful. I, some, some fundamental things I want to say about prayer first is that prayer is, as we believe that human beings are created in the image of God, and that uh, when we talk about the triune God, and we talk about the persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one eternal, ever-living God, that from eternity past, that God has existed in a community, in a community of love and communication and fellowship with one another from eternity past. And that 
Human beings made in the image of God are hardwired for this kind of community, for the experience of knowing and loving this God. And so uh, in the fall, in our separation in sin, in our uh, fall into death, a, a huge void was created and, and left by uh, the fall. And so there is a hardwired nature of prayer in every human being on the planet, and that works itself out in all kinds of ways. You see it in, in all kinds of religions, um, in non-religions, there is, there is some thread within the human heart that longs for communion with a, a higher power or the greater, the greater being. And so this is, this is something that you'll find all over the place. And so there's, if you were to go out and Google uh, prayer and how to do it, you're, you're, like anything else, you're gonna come up with a million pages of content, uh, plenty of things that you can work through to try to figure out what prayer is. But you're gonna get a lot of wild and varied answers about what prayer is because in seeking to fill that void and seeking to scratch that, that existential itch, um, there have been many things used to try to fill that gap that just don't work. But um, Jesus is helpful here, of course, in what he begins with when he talks about prayer. So when his disciples ask him, teach us how to pray like John's disciples taught us how to pray, and he replies with, or in, in this passage in Matthew, he starts with, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. Uh, so part of the reason that I bring up my experience now, we, we don't have an experience of this really in our day. Nobody, uh, it's hard to connect the dots on this one. In Jesus' day, there were hours of prayer in Jewish communities. And so when the hours were marked by some indicator, whether it was a sound or the time or a call, it was the time for prayer, and devout Jews would find a way to pray. And some um, Jews, the hypocrites that Jesus is describing, some folks would actually seek out, actively seek out opportunities to publicly pray in front of people. Because they, there's, again, there's that understanding, that intrinsic understanding that prayer is valuable, and in this community it was highly valuable. And so they would look for times and places and opportunities to stand and give very elaborate, very loud, very expressive prayer. Uh, Jesus calls this out later in this gospel where uh, the story he tells is that a, a tax collector and a Pharisee went up to the temple at the hour of prayer. They went to pray. And the Pharisee, if you remember the story, the Pharisee stands and he says, Jesus, classic sense of humor that's, that's funny but not funny, thank you, God, that I am not like the scummy tax collector over here who's sniveling like a baby. I'm really glad that I do all these good things and I thank you so much that I'm not like this guy. Um, this is the mental picture that the people that are listening to Jesus have in their mind. And so, uh, but then the tax collector is cowering, huddled away, beating his breast and saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now the Pharisee was the religious elite. The Pharisee was uh, the learned, the studied, the, the religious expert. And the tax collector was essentially a traitor to the Jewish people working for the Roman government at the time. And so they were rejected, they were hated, they were despised, and they had to do some pretty shady things. And the vast majority of them were just not nice people, not, not good people. They were taking advantage of their own on behalf of a foreign government to secure their own. So Jesus' 
painting this picture. And so when the people hearing Jesus for the first time hear him describing this, they have this picture. They know that there is uh, a group of people that will stand up and do this. And they also know, on the flip side of that, how that makes them feel. So they're uh, coming from the tradition that I came from, and, and again, many good experiences, but some out-of-balance experiences would be uh, that a church leader or people would, during a prayer meeting, it, do you guys, does it, you know what a prayer, prayer meeting is when a lot of people get together and pray. Uh, during a prayer meeting, um, some would stand and pray loudly. Uh, or at the time of prayer, usually kind of at the end of service where everyone is, is up pursuing uh, prayer, pursuing the gifts of the Spirit, would be forward and, and lots of people would be, there would be certain people that would stand and pray very loudly, very, very loudly. And it was very exuberant, very theatrical. And so when I hear Jesus' words, uh, my mind goes back to moments like that um, where people are praying and, and uh, having relationship with those people and knowing them, knowing some of them, I, I know that the motivation behind what they were doing wasn't necessarily for the glory of God, but sometimes, in fact, for their own glory, which they would say in not so many words uh, while eating chili after the service, which we did on a regular basis. So, um, sorry, I'm pulling you into a world. I'm taking you on a journey this morning, folks. Uh, when you look confused and bewildered, I'll just stop talking and we'll read the Bible together. How about that? So, um, so Jesus is warning the people in this day um, to not be like that. And he's also, in, on the same hand, he's comforting because there were plenty of times where in those moments, I would love to have been uh, in the shoes of the hypocrite because, you know, I mean, they're, they're getting all, I mean, they're the elite, right? They're the attention, they're the, they're the top cheese, you know? If there is a spiritual hierarchy, which is something that does develop in uh, out of balance or unhealthy congregation, there is a spiritual order. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a church where there is a, a spiritual hierarchy in the church, those who are more spiritual than others, and there's a pecking order, so to speak? No? Okay. Uh, so, what this did for the average person, the people, a lot of the people that Jesus was talking to, is they would hear those people and they wouldn't think to themselves, that dude's a hypocrite. Jesus was calling them a hypocrite, but when, when the Jewish people saw them standing and praying and hearing those prayers and hearing those words, there was, there was also a sense of admiration. Uh, of the, like, these, these, are, these guys have it figured out. Like, they can stand up and they can say those words, and man, God must hear them. That's amazing. I, I so wish I could be like that, because when I go to pray, it sounds like a blubbering baby, or sometimes I don't even have the words. I, I, I can't pray like that. And Jesus is taking those who have set themselves very high in the religious and spiritual order of the day, and he's, he's saying, no, look, it's not always the case. They're, what's going on inside matters so much more than what's going on on the outside, than what's, what's coming out of, the, of that person. And so uh, he's speaking on multiple levels here about this unhealthy balance and this unhealthy way to pray. And so um, Jesus says that uh, in verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Uh, this isn't Jesus saying don't pray publicly. That, that happened many times throughout the New Testament. 
This is saying the normal mode of someone who is truly seeking God's face, and this, this should, that it ought to be a daily practice, this, when, when it was a time for prayer, that the good stuff, the good work of prayer happened in the quiet places, happened in, not in front of a lot of people, that the real work of prayer, and the, the word reward is actually significant, we may talk more about that in a little bit, but the, the idea that this isn't the ideal prayer, Jesus is saying that when you go and you pray, your father, these people think that they're getting God's attention because they're getting everybody else's attention. But what's actually happening is that the only reward they're going to reap is the attention that they desire so much from the people around them. And what's that worth? Jesus is saying that the, the real reward of prayer from the work of prayer happens in the quiet places, happens in the stillness and the darkness sometimes. And that this is where the work of prayer actually happens. And that when that work is put in, that the reward is a reward from your Father. It's not the reward of the admiration of the people around you. Uh, he goes on to say uh, in verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. So it was a common practice uh, in ancient times and still in many parts of the world that uh, the idea that um, repetition of phrases or the volume at which you were repeating those phrases or praying or even altered states that you could work yourself into through uh, certain kinds of repetition and the shutting out of external uh, stimuli, all of that, that you could work yourself into a state and that this was required to one, either get the attention of the deity or two, get yourself out of the way so that you could actually commune with the deity, so that you could be, get a, a sense of the awareness of the deity, right? So um, what this looked like in ancient times, and you can, there are, you can YouTube it, there's still uh, religious practices all over the world where phrases are repeated over and over and over again. Uh, rituals are repeated over and over and over again, and this leads the individual, leads a group of people to a state, sort of an ecstatic state where they uh, are experiencing the shutting out of external stimuli, where they are focusing in on one thing, and some, there are um, a lot of different ways. Now, in, again, in the Pentecostal church, I had get to, got to experience this firsthand in some cases, where there were uh, words, phrases, um, habits that you could uh, engage in that would, would help guide you into a state that was more open to prayer. There are ways that this works itself out in um, some modern practices of meditation throughout the world, even in, even here, North America. Have you guys, do you, do you know of any, like, coworkers or executives that, that are talking about meditation now? Does anybody, social media, have you seen anybody talking about the importance of meditation, how it, maybe it's changed their life. Nobody? Nobody? Okay. Uh, yeah, there's an undercurrent. So I don't know what it is. Is it the tech world? Because I'm looking at nerds and they're like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. So, um, so yeah, I know for whatever reason, computer nerds, uh, there's the thing about meditation now. I, you guys, really? Nobody else? Okay. Uh, so since stuff starts in Silicon Valley and gets everywhere, right? Let's just, let's just give you a heads up. Uh, there's a, there's a movement. <laughs> there's a movement to engage in forms of meditation. And this is, if you, if you haven't had any exposure to it, this is a very sensible knee-jerk reaction to how overwhelmed we are as a culture and how inundated we are with information, 
how everything's coming at you, how we're so incredibly busy that we're not taking any time for ourselves or for focus or for rest. We're not doing any of those things. And a lot of that is answered by the Christian community in the framework of the Sabbath, taking Sabbath rest. But uh, in the world, they're scratching and clawing to figure out how to do combat with this. this the, what they're seeing present as anxiety and stress-related disorders and all kinds of mental pitfalls that, fall, that come as a result of being completely overwhelmed. Whether it's work or life or school or schedule or the stress of, I don't know, like a global pandemic uh, and your kids are home and maybe everybody dies. Who knows? Uh, it's, it's not stressful at all, right? So it's a pushback against a lot of that to bring focus, quiet, stillness, and there's some sense in that because we haven't taken enough time for that just as humans, it is, it is a need that we have. But uh, in some cases, the, the focus on meditation can become out of balance or unhealthy when it pushes us to the point of blocking out everything that is significant or important and so that we come to a place of stillness or nothingness or focus on a singular thing and that thing is not necessarily something worth your entire and undivided focus. Um, Joel did a great job last week talking about the importance of meditation and even how that dovetails into the practice of prayer and that meditation for the Christian should always be grounded and rooted in God's word to, uh, to understand, to know more about who God is. And so uh, when we think about meditation, we think about meditation on the scriptures, but there, uh, there are plenty of practices out there. There are uh, plenty of pitfalls to be had for spiritual experiences, and I'll say this, I think that, um, and if you wanna talk more about it, feel free to, to hit me up or whatever, I'm sure we'll have a nice long awkward conversation. Um, but, I, but I believe that the ability to experience uh, and to engage, or engage with the supernatural, with more than what our physical senses, touch, taste, smell, all of that can observe and can experience. I believe that the ability to experience the supernatural is, a, is an inherent human image bearer of God ability, that it is actually something that is wired into us, that it, it is a human capability. It is something, it is, have you ever, um, just because th you haven't had that experience and you can't put a name on it, doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't exist. I'll just say that. If you, if you know anybody who does crossfit, what is it called? Cross, crossfit, I believe is what it's called. Or any other, any other kind of, any other kind of gym activity, or you're moving furniture, uh, you move furniture, you know, do any kind of random thing that requires exertion. Have you ever said the words, I, I worked a muscle I didn't know I had? Yes? Yes. Have you had that experience? Yes. I've had, there are a lot of muscles apparently I didn't know I had. Uh, I did, I'm not aware of most of my muscles apparently because that happens to me frequently. But, but yes, the ability to, to sense and to experience the supernatural, more than what our normal senses can see, I believe is a human capability. And it's very important, I, I know maybe this doesn't make sense for you right now, maybe this is for a small cross-section of you, or maybe you put this in your pocket and save it for later. The ability to tap into that, and the ability to experience things that are supernatural in nature, supernatural in nature, uh, is a basic human capability I believe that we all have, and the experience alone does not, by virtue of that experience, mean that it's a good thing. Do you, know, do you know what I mean? Because you can experience it, and because you have an experience with it, does not mean that it is a good thing just because that part of your 
your being went active, okay? So there are a lot of things that can stimulate this on a small scale, uh, beautiful narrative. Sometimes you're in the movie theater and you get swept up in a story and your senses are all engaged and you're moved maybe to tears and so you, you're, you're just feeling, you're, you're driving with what's going on. You're, you're tapping into a deeper story, into uh, a power that's kind of under the surface of the narrative. And so there are, I didn't mean to get weird with this, sorry, but I, I just wanna, I don't know why I feel like I need to emphasize, I just wanna emphasize the point. The experience itself does not mean that it's good. It's like, um, it's like anything. It's like, uh, even like sexual experience. Just because you're capable of experiencing it as a human being and it may be pleasurable for a time outside of the, the confines of covenant love relationship, it is not in and of itself a good thing. Got it? Okay, I'll stop talking about that. Sorry. So, um, there are lots of ways to misunderstand prayer. Jesus has, has gone through this. And so, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't heap up empty, empty phrases. You don't need to try to get God's attention. Um, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask him. What's he saying? He's, he's saying that all of the things that you think you need to do, all the hills you think you need to climb to get to God, your Father in heaven already knows what you need before you ask him. So you don't, there's no hill to climb there. He, he knows. You don't have to wave your arms and get his attention so that he pays attention to you. You don't have to ring the loudest bell. You don't have to scream the loudest. You don't have to be the best. Your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask. So uh, Jesus is putting a lot of their, a lot of the pressures that they felt. We don't, we don't feel these things. Part of the reason I'm talking about this is to try to, to help you understand what the people that Jesus was talking to were experiencing and how they were feeling uh, in their day, in their moment, about what Jesus was saying and what he was actually addressing, some of those things that were going on in, in their time. Uh, and so then Jesus says, you should pray like this. And so what, for all these misunderstandings about prayer, uh, the question for me, the question that, that, that I want to answer is really what is prayer? Um, Tim Keller's book on prayer is, is one of the latest books I've read on prayer, and it's fantastic. And can I, let me just say, in reading and preparing for this and all the times that I've read about prayer, just about every book that I've picked up about prayer or thing that I've heard or listened to about prayer, every single person who has something to say about it or, or feels led to say something about it always has the disclaimer that I don't feel qualified to say what I'm saying. So, if freaking Tim Keller is going to say, I don't feel qualified to say what I'm saying, have a little mercy on me for being up here preaching about this right now, folks. I mean, you're, you're going to sleep right now, I get it. This is, it's weird and confusing so far. I'm really sorry about that, but just come on. Tim Keller is unqualified. I should have a shirt that says, not qualified. Anyway, <clears throat> so, uh, this uh, a quote from Keller, uh, a summary statement. So what then is prayer in its fullest sense? Prayer is continuing a conversation with God that he started through his word and his grace, which eventually becomes a full encounter with him. I'm gonna read it again. Prayer is continuing a conversation with God that he started through his word and his grace, which eventually becomes a full encounter with him. And so trying to understand prayer as a discipline, um, which for me, who, 
kind of came up thinking that this was just a natural instinct that a lot of people had or a special gift that people had. Understanding it as a discipline was a different way of looking at it for me. And it's important to understand it as a discipline. And so even if we call back to Jesus talking about the reward of the hypocrite and the reward of those who seek God in the quiet places and earnestly seek after him, the idea that there is a payoff, the idea of a, of a discipline, of a personal discipline is, is a, a habit that is formed in us, a, a practice, a behavior that is formed in us over time. It's not something that you can just jump right into and necessarily be fantastic at or something that you fully understand right away. It is a habit, it is a practice that's, that accrues benefits over time. And so it's important to understand that because if you don't understand it as a discipline, what you will feel is what I felt a thousand times over is that you will jump into prayer and you will feel fully inadequate. You will feel like an idiot. You will think that your words are just dropping like a little bad spit bomb right out in front of you on the ground and they never make it to, they never make it to the ears of God. Why would God listen to me? I'm nobody. Uh, I don't have my ducks in a row. I can't figure this out. And I'm just praying out of my desperation. I'm just, I'm just a, a blind man fumbling in the dark. Why would God hear me? Why would God listen to me? If you, if you jump into it expecting right away that you're going to reap the benefits of prayer and understand out, can God, does God hear the prayer of even the ignorant and the desperate? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely he does. But for followers of Jesus, for us to jump in and expect to ace prayer and just check that off our box, like it's a thing you could ever do, right away is ludicrous. Don't, don't, do please, I beg you, do not have that expectation of yourself or of anybody else. It is a process. It is a discipline. And so uh, to understand it properly in its framework, Tim draws out this great point that it is, it is a conversation, it is our response to God's revelation of himself and who he is and all that he's shown us to be in his, in his revealed word. So any form of prayer that's not firmly grounded in God's word, that you haven't uh, taken the time to learn about who God is, to, to try to understand who he is, to expect prayer to progress beyond the very basic rudimentary functions is, is an unrealistic expectation. And so, um, again, that's why meditation is important. And so Psalm 1 is a fantastic place to start. Psalm 1 is a meditation about, it's not even a prayer, it's a meditation about meditation. It's a meta-meditation about meditating. That's exactly what it is, on God's word. Um, anyway. So do that later. Hopefully you've been doing that. Joel, Joel said we should be reading and meditating. Have you, has anybody been? Raise your hands nice and proud. No, I'm just kidding. Don't, you don't have to raise your hands. Um, but hopefully you are working on uh, incorporating that into your daily practice. Uh, so with that in mind, understanding that, that prayer is bound to God's word, when we look at the Lord's prayer, we can see that even, even Jesus in this beautiful, poetic, short prayer, and I'm going to try to move through this as quickly as possible, uh, because I've already blabbed for a really long time. Um, as Jesus gives his disciples, his followers, even us, this beautiful gift of this poetic, sort of two-sided prayer, um, it's, it's fantastic. And it's actually, it actually has ties. It, listen, I, there's a ton of stuff written on the Lord's Prayer. There's a lot of comment, there's a lot of things out there you can read on the Lord's Prayer. We're not going to cover it all this morning. We're just going to scratch the surface just a little bit. But I, I dare you, I dare you to attempt to plumb the depths of what this prayer holds. I dare you. Go home and try to, within a month's time, 
read everything you can possibly find on it, and just have that feeling of satisfaction of, I really, this man, that, I figured this out. It's, it's great. Okay. No, it just keeps unfolding. It just, it's, it's the gift that keeps on giving. So, um, just the phrase, our Father in heaven, uh, three sermons right there. Our Father in heaven. So, God was called Father. That wasn't unusual in Jesus' day to, for, for God to be referred to as Father. But when, when the Jewish people referred to him as Father, they were talking about him as the originator of all things, as the creator and sustainer of, of the universe and, and of the earth and of all the people in it. So it was Father in the sense that uh, everything was springing from him. He was, he was the source of it and, it, and he was governing and maintaining it at a very high level. And, and so that wasn't unusual. What's, what's unusual is that when Jesus is talking about, so understand the significance of Jesus, the Son of God as is, is he's revealed in his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, Jesus asking us to pray, our Father. So we talked in the beginning about the triune God being in this community of love, communication, fellowship from eternity past, and that he is, he is calling us into that. Jesus himself is calling us in. He doesn't say, uh, you guys, listen, when you pray, pray to my Father, and then you say this. He says, pray to our Father. Also, the word our is really significant really, really significant. Uh, if you look through the prayer, normally, I'm gonna guess, if you have exposure to the Lord's Prayer, and this is something you've prayed over and over again, uh, even as a child, usually when we say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, uh, give us this day our daily bread, we're actually, in our minds, we're saying, give me this day my daily bread, or my Father in heaven, or uh, forgive me my debts, my sins, my trespasses, as I forgive those who have sinned, dead, and trespassed against me. Um, lead me not into temptation. But the use of the word our and ours and we is extremely significant because he's calling a people into his family to be adopted by his father as children, as siblings of his own. You are being called into fellowship with the eternal God you are a follower of Jesus, and he is leading you to pray the words, Our Father. In Ephesians 1, 5, and 6, this ought to sound familiar. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved, it's a capital B, meaning Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That last part ought to sound familiar because it's a part of our communion liturgy where we proclaim the gospel at the end of a prayer of confession to remind ourselves that what we're doing in partaking in the Lord's Supper is this ongoing reminder of what Jesus has done for us and that we are mind-blowingly, folks, called into the family of God, that we are called his own, we're called his people. Jesus will say in John 17 that, look, I've... I, I've told you all this stuff, and you're, you're not going to have to say to me, go talk to the Father on my behalf. No, the Father loves you. The Father loves you. And so you can pray to him. And this is the, the crazy, outlandish thing that we take for granted all the time when we re read the words or we pray the words or we mouth the words, our Father who art in heaven. We're not going to spend as long on everything else. But our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Um, you might recognize hallowed from Halloween. It uh, means to be made holy 
or to set apart for a unique, special, specific purpose. And your name is, uh, a name in the ancient world, my name is Jeremy. I could go to a government office and pay a couple hundred bucks and I could change it to something else. I could change it to Floyd. I'm, I don't know why Floyd, but it's like Lloyd, but with an F in front of it. It's the, it's, it's the better version. So names, names as we understand them today are associated with people, but they're, they're things that we can take on and take off. We can, have, we can have sign in names, we can have online identities, but all of these things are loosely bound to who we are as a person. For, for Jesus to say, hallowed be your name, in Jesus' day, name was like reputation. Name was the whole person, the, the whole story of the person. And so when Jesus is talking, uh, it's asking us to say, to request that God's name be hallowed, hallowed be your name, it means that the story of who God is, that his person and work in the world would be known and made holy everywhere. There are places in the Old Testament and in the New where the writer will say that God's name is actually being blasphemed because of you. Like, you're carrying God's name. You're wearing, you're wearing God's work t-shirt, and you're walking around in the world, and you're doing terrible things. And so people think, because you're carrying God's name, that God is responsible for these things, and, he, and he's being mocked, and he's being blasphemed. And so it's kind of a two-sided prayer. It's asking God to do the work through the Holy Spirit of bringing a, a hallowed awe to his name in the world, to bringing the greatness and the glory to his name and to his whole story and to his whole being. But it's also, on the backside of it, it's a prayer for ourselves to say, to, to be good representatives of who God is in the world and to the world. Uh, your kingdom come, the best thing in the world that could possibly happen. There's many sermons that could be preached on. You could break this whole thing down and make it an entire series, but the best thing that could happen for the world is that the kingdom of Jesus Christ could come in its fullness and set all things right and make all things new. Human systems of government, any human system of government will ultimately fall flat, fall short, because it is run by sinful, broken people just like you and me. And so the thing that we need, the thing that we ought to long for, the thing that we ought to echo like the church did uh, in the early days and, at the, and even at the end of the book, Revelation, the, the last cry out is, Amen, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That the fullness of God's kingdom, even though it's present here now in God's people and his work in the world, the fullness of that would come. Uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is a petition of trust and submission. This is Jesus' own prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's on the precipice of going into an unjust trial and uh, being accused and then brutally executed. And um, this is a statement of patient trust even in the face of death and adversity, patient trust in who God is and in his good will. Uh, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven uh, is linked to the following, or the, is linked to the um, your kingdom come because these two, so this, this idea of, if you, if you kind of brush that with a, paint it with a big brush of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is really asking for God's good will to be done in the earth. And in the context of where this is in the Bible, it's in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And so there's all of these things, all of Jesus' teaching that's surrounding this are a revelation of God's will for God's people in the world. And in some ways, marching orders, in some ways, uh, statement, prophetic statements about what's going to happen in the world and the way that God's Spirit's going to work in it. Uh, give us this day our daily bread uh, is 
just us engaging in intimate dependence on who God is. When a kid asks their parents for food, which my kids will not stop asking for food, I don't know. So my wife and I, for those of you who haven't seen us parade in, we have six children. And uh, so, so some people go to Sam's to like buy things once a year or uh, buy things for parties and gatherings and stuff. We go to Sam's every week or like every other week at, at the least. It's like a thing. Today, we may need to go to Sam's to go stock up on a bunch of stuff, toilet paper, food, napkins. They will not stop asking for food, you guys. If you want them to come to your house and they can ask you for food, that's fine. I, that's okay. We have a loaner program. You take it, if you don't have any kids, you want to try it out, see how it works. Take, take a couple of ours home, just see how it works out for you. Bring them back, it's fine. Um, no, we love, we love all of them. I know, Caroline, you know, I'm just joking, it's okay. The, the point is, it's a, very, it's a very special thing. It's a thing that you only do with your mommy or your daddy to ask them for, well, that's not, so you could be anywhere. Kids will ask for food anywhere. I was gonna try to make that all heartwarming, but no, kids will just straight up ask for food, right? No. But, but it is, it is the, the love and the connection between parent and child. It's a special bond because there's a responsibility there, yes, but then there's also a trust there from the part of the kid to go open the refrigerator and trust that there's gonna be food in there. If there's a way to provide it, that the parents will move mountains to provide food and sustenance for their children. And some people get weirded out by this because, well, if God knows what I need before I ask him, then why do I have to ask anything? This, here's the beauty of this. Don't, don't be confused by that. This is beautiful because what God's doing, again, he's calling you into relationship with himself. He is calling you into this relationship of love and communication that's been going on from the beginning and just voicing the need that we have. First of all, there's a lot of depth here because we don't always ask for the right thing. Kids are great at asking for the right thing at the wrong time or the wrong thing at the right time or whatever. All the different combinations of that. Kids are excellent at that. Uh, and so are we, by the way. We can ask for the right thing at the wrong time. We can ask for the right thing for the wrong reason. We can ask for the wrong thing at the right time. We can ask for the wrong thing at the wrong time. There's always the wrong time to ask for the wrong thing. But, but God knows these things. And so the, the God has knowledge and a deep understanding of who we are and what we need is comforting. But it's also comforting to know that he's calling us to, to, to bring those needs to him. And in, even in our asking, he can help us to sometimes iron out those desires. Forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. Uh, this one throws us off, and it really should. We're almost, we're, we're getting close. Um, it really should th throw us off a little bit. I imagine, and, and Jesus kind of moves on, actually. So, forgive us our debts, as we also forgiven our debtors. Just flip over to the next side there. And he just moves right on, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, and he's done. If I'm in the back, in the crowd, like, I just imagine there's like a Dave in the back, like, uh, Jesus, hey, Mr. of Nazareth, can you just, can you go back for just a second there? Because it sounded like, it sounded like that you said that, um, that God's forgiveness of us was actually contingent on our forgiveness of other people. Could you just go back to that and clarify that for me? And Jesus is like, yeah, let me go back and clarify that for you. In verse 14, what does he say? For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And if I'm Dave, I'm like, oh, well, honey, we're going to hell. So I guess, thank you, Jesus, for the clarification. I really appreciate that. 
and uh, have a nice have a nice day. That's awesome. Uh, apparently, this is so important and so central to how Jesus wants his people to live and how he wants his followers to work in the world uh, that he doubles down on it at the end of the prayer. He comes back to double down on this statement at the end of the prayer to really drive it home. If you didn't feel the knife in the first place, he just wants to twist it just a little bit in the hardness of your heart to, to crack you open there. And, and he goes on in chapter 18 of Matthew, he's going to tell a parable. Peter's going to get ticked off because he, they're paying taxes and blah, 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 and his brother lied to him. And it's it, like, how many times, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? Come on. How many times? If the guy, forgive, if the guy messes with me seven times, and then, it, like, is that enough? Eighth? He's done? He's, done? He's dead to me? And he's just like, let me tell you a story. There was a king, and this king, there, there was a servant, and the servant owed the king, like, a lot of money. And it's hard for us to understand in the passage, in the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18, but it's a lot... It's a lot of money. It's like a scary, large sum of money. It's enough money that if somebody had misplaced or mishandled that amount of money, it would bankrupt some small kingdoms. And the guy comes before this king and says, I owe you a lot of money. I can't, I, I, got, I got nothing. I, I'm so, I, I, it's really embarrassing. I, but I don't have, and he falls down and he grovels before the king. And the king, mind-blowingly, forgives the guy, forgives him, says, okay, no, you, yeah, you may have bankrupted our kingdom. I may have to lay off a bunch of people, but no, you're forgiven. Go, it's, it's okay, you're forgiven. And the man walks out, and he's probably still snotty and feeling good, and the picture that Jesus paints is that he immediately goes out and begins to rebuild his own identity and his own wealth and start to gain power. And he goes out and he finds somebody who owes him a few hundred bucks and he starts to strangle the guy. It's a, it's a cartoon of a, of a story. He starts to strangle the guy and say, pay me everything you owe. And if you don't have it, I'm gonna lock you up, I'm gonna lock your kids up and you're all gonna work as slaves until you pay off the debt. That's exactly what's gonna happen if you don't pay me the money you owe. And the king finds out about it and guess who's in trouble? That guy, this is so important because, again, it goes back to understanding who Jesus is, what God has done, what he has accomplished in the person work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. If we don't understand the basics of what it means to be fallen, to be sinful, to be rebels, to a just, holy, and perfect God, and to soil and to ruin and to vandalize and bring death into his good world, if we don't understand that there, is, there are extreme consequences for that and that the cost for that, the price for that, comes at the blood of the Son of God, that that's the cost, if we don't understand that, then it's very easy to walk around and harbor unforgiveness and harbor grudges in our heart. But that is not any, if we understand, if we really look at who Jesus is and what he's done for us and what that means for us as people, as humans, then, then there ought to be something in us that works to forgive those around us. Does that happen overnight? No, because pain is so real. Pain, uh, we hurt each other. We are really good at hurting each other. And there, there are a lot of deep wounds and hurts and a lot of pain and a lot of scars. Is that a process that happens overnight? It's absolutely not. 
uh, it's a process that takes time and it takes a lot of God's grace and it takes a lot of the work of the Spirit. But it's a direction we should be moving in. It's definitely not a door that we should have slammed shut. Um, so. Uh, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil again. You can't, you can't plumb the depths of all of that um, right now. But essentially, a lot of uh, scholars, a lot of theologians see this as uh, some, some divided into two. Like if you're John Calvin, you chop this into two petitions, but really uh, most people look at it as one. And it's a, it's a simple request to, we can get hung up on, don't lead us into temptation, but it's, a, it's pointing to the internal struggles with sin that we have. And then also deliver us from evil would be the, uh, the external forces of evil that would work against us. So the internal and the external both asking for, acknowledging our helplessness and asking for help from God in deliverance from him, in deliverance at his hand, um, by his hand, from these forces from within and without. Okay. I'm sorry. I've talked for a really long time. You're like, this guy's talked for a really long time, and I'm sorry. Um, but the point is, I, w- I want to encourage you. Here's, here's, here's the point. Here's the practice. This prayer, when somebody went to Jesus and said, all right, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? Look, uh, look back on the whole story of God. Story of the, what's the, look, look back at the law of commands that God gave, the body of teaching, instruction, the body of commands that God gave. What, what's the most important one? This is a popular question back in the day. Jesus' response was what? Jesus, Jesus followers, what do you got? That's exactly right. It was... Yeah. It was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second one, second one is, what, is, what word does he use? second one is like it. Uh, and this is think twins. Think uh, side, they're set side by side. Um, the second one is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. If you look at the structure of the Lord's Prayer, the petitions are broken down into two sections and they perfectly reflect this heart, this command that Jesus says uh, is, is the one on which all the law and the prophets hang. And by that, he means the whole story of God. All of this, all the whole thing hangs on love of the Lord and love of neighbor. And that's how this prayer is broken down. So here's, here's the practice I want to encourage you with. We're going to, we're calling it, look, I'm going to close. I'm going to close all my notes. I'm going to close. Here's the practice I want to leave you with. If, if you are, if you're someone who has worked hard and you have regular practices of prayer in your life, fantastic. Take your prayers and measure them by this prayer. Just set them side by side. Jesus is giving us shelves to put our petitions on. See, see if your petitions fit on these very, some of these are, can go very broad, very broad shelves. Do an audit, do an evaluation of your prayer life and see if, if it fits this framework, if it, if it makes sense. If you have no regular practice of prayer in your life, if you have uh, decided to follow Jesus, if you are a Christian, if you've trusted in him for your salvation, if you've heard the good news of what he's done for you and the Spirit's working in your heart and you're coming to him, fantastic. Thank God. What I would encourage you to do is make the Lord's Prayer a regular part of your daily life. I, I would prescribe three times a day. I think it's fantastic. Um, Luther would say morning and evening. Um, some would say morning, noon, and night. I, I th- 
and having tried to make this a regular practice, uh, using this as a framework for my prayers for the last even couple of years uh, at the recommendation of another, I have found actually the midday to be super interesting because I find myself saying it in places and at times that I wouldn't normally. So in the morning, I can say it at home, I can say it in the shower, I can say it wherever. I can say, I, I can recite the Lord's Prayer and make that the launch into my prayer time. I can do, can do that. And at night, as, as I'm settling in to the end of the day, I can say it and I can remind myself of these things. But in the middle of the day, when I'm out doing whatever I'm doing, whether it's at work or whether I'm making a store run or whatever, and I mark the time by saying the Lord's Prayer, you'll find that, that the petitions take on a, a different light. When we, Paul says, uh, rejoice always and pray without ceasing. When we take that attitude of living in an awareness of God's presence in our life and bringing our prayers and petitions to him, even at the craziest of times, uh, you'll find that they apply to all kinds of things. What does it mean for God's kingdom to come and his will be done at work? So, how does that apply to email? It's weird. But it's amazing, and it will mess with you. So I'm going to encourage you to do that. So uh, I'm going to say, let's, uh, let's say the Lord's Prayer together, where, where I would, and then, I'll, um, and then I'll pray for it. So let's, let's try this one more time. Are you, are you sick of it yet? Come on, you know you want to go home and read it 500 times. You know you do. All right. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That last line is actually uh, an indication. It's not in most manuscripts. It's actually a glaring indication that the early church adopted this, this prayer as their prayer, as a regular, their regular practice of prayer included the prayer that Jesus gave us. And so it's perfectly okay to say that last traditional part of the prayer that we have, and some translations do stick it in there, but uh, I believe most don't these days. But, but that's a perfectly okay, it's a great book into the prayer, and it's actually a testimony that the early church had done this exact same thing. They adopted Jesus' prayers their own, they gave themselves to meditating on it and thinking about it and praying with Jesus and praying with each other, even apart using the words our. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, this time and we thank you for your word and we thank you for the beautiful gift of prayer. Uh, we thank you for Jesus' instruction, his wise, loving instruction and in his words uh, of prayer for us. And that we could even come to you is just mind-blowing. We just stand in the glory of what he's done for us, what you've accomplished through him, what you continue to do through the fellowship of your spirit, through the regenerating, life-giving power of your spirit, and we just ask that we can just savor that, that we could flow with it and not push against it, that we could uh, give each day ourselves, give, give each day, each hour, give time to prayer and to focus into an awareness of your presence in our lives. We ask it in his name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.